0: This message was given at Grace Community Church in Minden, Nevada. At the end, we will give information about how to contact us to receive a copy of this or other messages. If you take your Bibles and turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 1, 1 Corinthians chapter 1. We're going to read starting in verse 26, but I would remind you that the the context really begins at verse 18. Verse 26, for consider your calling, brethren, that there were not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble, but God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise, and God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things... "...which are strong, and the base things of the world, and the despised God has chosen the things that are not, so that he may nullify the things that are, so that no man may boast before God. But by his doing you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, and righteousness, and sanctification, and redemption, so that, just as it is written, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord." Well, this uh, passage uh, that we're going to look at tonight, we're not going to get to verses 30 and 31, but this passage is really a, a wonderful and a very, very potent reminder to us of how thankful we should be for God's grace. God's grace makes sense only If we are actually aware of our sin and God's grace only makes sense if we are aware of our standing without that grace and God's grace only makes sense if we are aware of our own inability apart from that grace and God's grace only makes sense if we understand the Deserts of divine justice apart from that grace. And so, as we come to this, this text tonight, we're going to see that grace only makes sense when we see how lost we are, what we really deserve. The fact is, is that the bigger we are in our own eyes, the smaller grace is. We can actually make grace microscopic because we make ourselves so big. And we live in a culture that, of course, what does, uh, what does our culture want us to boast in? Our culture wants us to boast in ourselves. Okay. I walked into the office today, and I walked into Jason's office and to say hi, as I always do, and I said, hey, fatty, and he looked at me and he said i forget the exact wording but something like thank you for crushing my self esteem and and uh, not building me up and making me feel good about myself and uh, but that's really that's really what our culture thrives on is the idea of self esteem feeling good about yourself making much of yourself being the hero of your own story, being your own superhero. And the fact is, is that the bigger we are in our own eyes, the more microscopic will be the grace of God. If God's grace is big, we will be small. If we're big, God's grace will be small. And so this is a passage that wants us to boast, not in ourselves, but in God himself, who has shown us all grace. And so, this passage actually, think of it this way. This passage is a, uh, a passage that teaches us the art of boasting properly before God. All right? Okay, so, we saw, uh, however many weeks ago, uh, chapter 1, verses 18 to 25 is, let's get the symmetry here, the cross which is the wisdom and power of God. Okay. Now, 26 to 31 is going to be divine calling, which is also a demonstration of the power and wisdom of God. Then chapter 2, verses 1 to 5 will be the preaching of the cross, which is also the power and the wisdom of God so that's the thing that holds these paragraphs together is the idea of the power and the wisdom of God. And of course, from the world's perspective, um, God's wisdom looks like foolishness. And from the world's perspective, God's power, God's strength, which is displayed preeminently where? In the cross. And the cross is the very embodiment, the very epitome of weakness according to the world. But yet it is that that is the demonstration of the power of God. And so God does these great reversals, turns the world upside down. And so in this passage, remember the Corinthians, they're kind of hung up on themselves. They would have made very good 21st century Americans. And they're very hung up on themselves and they're very uh, enamored with their own spirituality, their own maturity, their own sense of wisdom, their own sense of knowledge, their own sense of self-importance. Right? We were talking in the Greek class yesterday about what these, what these worship services in Corinth must have been like. Right? Everybody trying to one up each other and show how spiritual each one was, how I'm more spiritual than you. Must have been absolute chaos. And in this passage, now, once Paul has now established at the cross that Christ himself is the wisdom and the power of God. Now, what Paul's going to do, is he's going to make the Corinthians, at least try to make them, think back to the time when God called them. So... You have have to understand the pastoral strategy. The Corinthians have grown big in their own eyes, and the cross is now really small. And in order for them to see that the cross should be really big and they should be really small, what Paul's going to do is he's going to take them back to, remember when you were first called. It's going to be, hopefully, a humbling experience. He's going to remind them what they were, And to some degree, what they still are. What God did for them. What they could not and did not do for themselves. And this passage is going to remind them and us that salvation is all of grace. Sometimes you just need to be reminded about that. Sometimes sometimes we actually in order to properly esteem grace, God needs to knock us down a few pegs. We don't like that. But if we love grace, we'll embrace it. So, Robertson and Plummer, two old commentators, paraphrase this opening section like this. For consider, brothers, the circumstances of your own call. Very few of you were wise, as men count wisdom, Very few were of great influence, very few were of high birth. Paul starts off in verse 26 with a command, and that is the command to consider. Now, literally, it's just the verb to look, but the idea is to pay close attention to, to observe closely, to give close consideration. And so Paul's going to say, I-, I want you to stop, and I want you to ponder, I want you to think, heavenly, co- heavily consider something. Now, when, when the Bible calls us to consider something, to give close attention to something, my suggestion is, is that you give close attention to that thing. Right? I mean, if if the apostle is calling on them and in a sense on us to give close attention to this, then it's, it's as if uh, the apostle is saying, here is a truth that I'm going to put in front of you and what I want you to do is I want you to give this close consideration. I want you to contemplate what I'm about to set before you. In other words, I want you to think. And I want you to think deeply. Here's an another, another amazing thing about um, our current life situation, and that is we are not a society, generally speaking, that thinks deeply about much of anything. We are shallow. We, we are people who are informed by the soundbite. We're people whose opinions are shaped by 30-second commercials. It's not a reflection of depth. It's a reflection of our own superficiality, our own, our own refusal to think deeply. Promise people a free cell phone and you can get them to vote for you. This is where we're at. And Paul says, I want you to put the brakes on, Corinthians, and stop and think about what? About your calling, brethren. Now, Paul is not asking them to think about their vocation, calling in that sense. In fact, the the grammar would lead us to make it more Literal rendering of something like this Consider the calling of you, brethren. What Paul is doing now is he's bringing back into focus something that he's already touched on. In fact, if you look at the opening introduction in chapter 1 and verse 2, Paul says, to the church of God, which is at Corinth, to those who have been sanctified in Christ Jesus, saints by what? Saints by calling. Verse 9, Paul says, God is faithful through whom you were, what? Called into fellowship with his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Now, Paul is saying, I want you to consider your calling. Now, when Paul talks about calling, like I said, he's not talking about vocation, nor is he talking about something in which we had active participation in. He's talking about something that God did to us. He's talking about something in which God was the actor. And we were the recipient. And so we call this calling by different names. Sometimes we call it irresistible grace. Okay. Now, not all grace, of course, is irresistible, but there is a certain kind of grace that is irresistible. Sometimes we call it something like invincible grace. That is the idea of grace that, that will triumph over our sin and our rebellion. Sometimes we call it efficacious grace. That is grace that is effective, efficacious in bringing us to saving faith in Jesus Christ. Sometimes we call it effectual calling. That is the internal call of the spirit that is effective in bringing us to Christ. That's what Paul's talking about. Now, all of these, uh, I, I prefer effectual Calling myself, it's a little more specific. Um, but I put in your notes a grand, grand definition by Bruce Ware. He says, The doctrine of irresistible grace refers to the Spirit's work to overcome all sin-induced resistance and rebellion. Opening blind eyes and enlivening hardened hearts so that sinners understand and embrace the gospel of salvation through faith in Christ. Such is the grace by which we are saved. And I can actually hear Dr. Ware saying this. May all honor and glory be given to God alone for such a wondrous salvation. Okay? So it, it, when we're talking about effectual calling or irresistible grace, we're talking about something that God does in us to overcome our most fundamental problems, like being dead in trespasses and sins, and being rebellious, and being hardened, and being resistant. So the Shorter Catechism says, what is effectual calling? The answer, effectual calling is the work of God's Spirit, whereby convincing us of our sin and misery... Enlightening our minds in the knowledge of Christ and renewing our wills, He doth persuade and enable us to embrace Jesus Christ freely offered to us in the gospel. So calling is the Spirit of God's special work. I love the the definition of the shorter catechism. Actually, it's the work of God's Spirit. And what does God's Spirit do? Well, God's Spirit, first of all, convinces me of my sin and misery. In effectual calling, when the Spirit of God is at work, the Spirit of God is is working in me, the sinner, in such a way that I am becoming painfully aware, convinced and convicted of my sin and my misery, that is, of my lost state. But the Spirit does more than just simply convince me of that. Notice, he then enlightens the mind in the knowledge of Christ. So, the things that I may have known beforehand as perhaps simple, objective, historical facts, which maybe I believed, maybe I didn't, in the sense of giving assent to them, now those truths burst upon my mind in a way that... That, that that the light of the gospel shines in my mind in such a way that I am now enlightened in the knowledge of Christ. I see Christ differently. And then he renews our wills. He takes that which is unwilling in me and works in such a way that I am willingly receiving the gospel. He works in me in such a way that I am persuaded to embrace, enabled to embrace Jesus Christ. And so, when we think of our conversion... We know that at some, some level, I chose Christ. But that's because he fixed my chooser first. If, 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 if the effectual call of God does not happen in me... Then I am doing nothing other than being a mere hearer of the word. Okay. So the effectual call of God's grace, first of all, it presupposes our depravity, our deadness in sin. Ephesians 2 1, you're dead in trespasses and sins. The effectual call of God presupposes divine election, right? Romans chapter 8, verses 29 and 30. Those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. Um, The Lord Jesus says that no one is able to come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. And so... Here is this wonderful, wonderful sense of being called by God. It is a supernatural work of grace. It's not something that you do for yourself. It's not something that you, you know, it's not like, you know, you, you, God casts his vote and the devil cast his vote and you cast the deciding vote. That's not the way it works. I've told you this before, but that's definitely not the way it works because this election, first of all, took place in eternity past, and so you were not yet 18, so you could not vote. Secondly, the devil is a, is a, is, is a convicted felon, and he cannot vote. So the only one voting in this election is God. And so Paul says, <laughs> Consider your Calling, brethren, consider that time. And of course, can Paul remember when most of these people were called? And the answer is, of course, because it wasn't that long ago that he was in Corinth and preached the gospel there and planted the church at Corinth. And so he says, remember, consider, deeply, deeply contemplate your calling, brethren. And then then he says, there are not Many Now, New American Standard, if you notice, it says there, that there were not many. So what's the ESV do, Jason? Oh, okay. Well, then you're right on. Okay. Um, does the ESV have were or are in verse 26? I rarely consult it, sorry. Okay. What's that? Were? Did somebody say were? Yes. You have the ESV Elizabeth? Were. Okay. I want to I want to make a mild suggestion and that is that that we probably not keep it in the past but we put it in the present. There are not many now what he's going to do is he's going to make an allusion to uh, Jeremiah chapter 9 verses 23 and 24 which by the way he'll quote at the end of this paragraph all right but he's going to say there are not many and he's going to give a list wise mighty and noble Now let me just say a few things about this not many First, we know that there were some who were wealthy, who were called. We know that there were some who held high office, who were called. But Paul's point is not so much sociological as it is theological. All right? In other words, what Paul is going to point out is that by and large, when God works, he doesn't work with the impressive people. Okay. And uh, in fact Gordon Fee makes a comment that I thought was 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 so pointed. He said every middle class and upper class domestication of the gospel is a betrayal of that gospel. Okay. And so Paul's point is going to be look at when you think about the constitution of the Corinthian church when you think about what God did among you when God called you when he called there were not many first wise according to the flesh We've already seen this um, expression of, 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 of wisdom a number of times in 1 Corinthians. And the idea is worldly st- a worldly standard. That's according to the flesh. A worldly standard of wisdom. Th- there weren't uh, the mighty intellectuals and the sophists. Uh, there weren't very many of those among you. And of course the reason goes back to because those people typically think the gospel is Foolishness. Okay? Not many mighty. That is the idea of those who had great wealth or those who uh, had social and political power. Paul says, think about your calling. There weren't very many of those either. Not many noble. The Greek lexicon says being of high status. Well-born, high-born, one commentator, a proud pedigree and belonging to the wealthy ruling class. Paul says, so there weren't very many, which by the way is, is, is a way of saying there were little, little few, right? Very few. Wise, mighty, and noble. Now Calvin points out, rightfully so, that Paul's not, point, uh, or not elevating the weak and the poor, etc., but what he is doing is he's bringing everybody down to the same level. The Corinthians had simply forgotten their humble beginnings in the Christian faith. They had forgotten that the message of the cross had showed them that they were indeed poor in spirit that they were bankrupt. They had forgotten that the message of the cross actually had pointed out that they were needy and desperate and helpless. That's what the message of the cross does for each and every one of us. The message of the cross is not a message that actually builds me up in my own sense of ability and self-sufficiency. In fact, the message of the cross knocks those props right out from under me. The message of the cross humbles us. The message of the cross actually brings everybody down to the, to, to the same level. Gordon Fee again says they had forgotten that the ground is level at the foot of the cross. You remember when you were first converted? I remember when I was first converted. I was, I was, I was one happy Altar boy, I was under conviction day and night, absolutely miserable because of my own sin and my own guilt. And I wanted nothing more than to be liberated from that sense of condemnation. And I did everything within my power that I thought I was supposed to do to be liberated from it. And nothing worked. I went to confession. I went to confession again. I went to confession with a visiting Franciscan. I went to confession trying to get relief from the burden of my sin, and it wasn't until I simply cast myself upon the Lord Jesus Christ with no merit of my own, nothing in my hand I bring, simply to the cross I cling, absolutely humbled to the dust, nothing to offer to God except my sin, nothing, nothing that I could do for myself. So cry out for mercy. Paul says, you've forgotten all about that. You've forgotten all about that. And so, consider your calling, brethren. And we're not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble. And then, of course, verse 27. Don't you love this? What's so great about verse 27? But God. (laughs) you have you have to appreciate this. <laughs> listen, losers. Here is the best news you could ever hear, but God. you unimpressive motley crew, you could do nothing for yourself but God. The, by the way, those two words are the foundation of your and my only hope, but God. So, but God, now notice, and and I tried to put this in your notes for you so that you could see this, but God, and then notice, number one, the foolish things of the world, God has chosen, 1.2, in order to shame the wise, the weak things of the world, God has chosen in order to shame the strong, and then number three, and the base of the world and the despised of the world, God has chosen the things which are not, and then notice, in order to nullify the things that are. There is this really, there's this great symmetrical structure to this, but notice three times Paul repeats himself, but God has chosen. Now, technically, he could have just said it once and it would have carried the the, the rest of the sentence. He says it three times. God has chosen, God has chosen, God has chosen in order to reiterate the fact that all of this is of divine grace. And so let's notice the first thing. But God, and this is the order of the Greek text, the foolish things of the world God has chosen. Now, notice in your Bible it says "foolish things." This is um, neuter. In Greek, you have masculine, feminine, and neuter. This is neuter, and so our translators puts in put in things. The foolish things God has chosen. Why neuter? Well, as one commentator puts it, these neuters indicate a mass in which the individuals have so little value that they are not counted as distinct personalities. And so Paul, in a sense of, of, of being derogatory, God has chosen the foolish things. These things, according to the world, don't even count as individual people. They're just the mass of the foolish. And Paul says, God has chosen the foolish things. Would you have counted among the foolish things? From the world's perspective, are you among the foolish things? Or is the world impressed with you? (laughs) Well, by the way, if the world's impressed with you, watch out. The foolish things God has chosen, and why did God choose the foolish things? He did it for a reason, in order to shame the wise. Now, the wise here are who? The wise according to the flesh, right? These are the the people that are wise by the world's standards, wise in their own eyes, and the, 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 the question is, why does Paul use the word shame? And the answer is actually quite magnificent because the idea of to shame someone is actually to bring public disgrace on a person. Now, by the way, the Corinthians lived in an honor culture which means that the worst thing that could happen to you in an honor culture, by the way, there are honor cultures today, okay? The worst thing that can happen to you in an honor culture is to be publicly shamed. In fact, public shame is worse than death, By the way, this is why the Philippian jailer was willing to fall on his own sword and kill himself when he thought that the prisoners had escaped because in an honor culture, to have prisoners escape is to be disgraced, and to be disgraced means disgrace for yourself, disgrace for your family, and it is to live with a shame that is never erased. It is better to die than to actually be publicly disgraced. Now, Paul says God has chosen the foolish things, i.e., the insignificant, meaningless, mass of foolish people, in order to shame the wise. Now, when is God going to shame the wise? Well, the answer actually is quite straightforward, and that is God shames the wise at the judgment. At the eschaton, when he actually publicly vindicates all of his people, and when he publicly vindicates all of his people, then he actually shames and humiliates those who have rejected and mocked him and his people. And in fact, we have throughout the Psalms, over and over and over again, the psalmist actually praying to God that not only would the psalmist not... Uh, uh, experience dishonor and shame, but that he would instead bring shame and humiliation upon his enemies. Okay. Over and over again, that's the idea. And so, so for David, for instance, for God to intervene and vindicate him in the presence of his enemies was to bring shame and reproach to his enemies. That's what happens on the last day. That's what happens in the eschaton. And so, Paul says, remember when God called you weren't very many of you that were impressive. There weren't very many of you that were mighty. There weren't very many of you that stood head and shoulders above everybody else. There there weren't many like that at all. In fact, God has chosen the foolish things of the world to do what? To shame the wise. To take those who are are so smart that they're smarter than God. You, you, You know that the new atheists... Okay. That's what they call them, the new atheists. You know, um, Dawkins and uh, Christopher Hitchens, who's no longer an atheist. Okay. He died last year. There's this new group, Sam Harris and others, and and they, they come across as if they are so... Smart. Richard Dawkins is perfect example. A man who has who is so intelligent that he is a fool. And here he is. They, these people mock God and they mock Christians and they mock religion. And Paul says, "There's coming a day when God's choice of that which the wise have considered foolish." One of these days, they'll be vindicated and the wise will be put to shame. The weak things God has chosen in order to shame the strong, the weak. If you want to boost your ego... Christianity is not the faith for you. So far, we've been categorized as the foolish and now the weak. Friedrich Nietzsche, of course, said that Christianity was a religion for the weak, didn't he? And guess what? He was right. There are no supermen, only those that are deluded into thinking that they're supermen. Right? And so God chooses the weak. God chooses, God chooses those that the world looks at and says, boy, weakling. Now, see, here's, here's the thing, is that we, we value strength. Culturally, we value strength, right? We value independence. We value the ability to pull yourself up by your own bootstraps. We value all the things. Self-sufficiency, we value these things. We value rugged individualism. And, and, and let me just say that there is, there is a sense in which personal responsibility and hard work and all of those things are good, wise values. But when it comes to the spiritual realm, you have no choice but to acknowledge your own fundamental weakness. So weak, poor, dare I say, pathetic. God says that's who I want on my team. See, this goes this goes against every principle of Memorial Day softball game. All right? Okay? Because when we pick teams, what do we do? We, who gets picked last? Don. Okay? No. Who gets picked last? The people that don't contribute because they're not physically awesome. God says, I'm going to pick my team. I'm going to start with the foolish. Then I'm going to pick the weak. He does it for a reason. Of course, here it's to shame the strong. And of course, again, it's the strong by by whose standard? Well, by their own standard, by the world's standard, right? And so he picks the foolish, he picks the weak, and then finally the base of the world and the despised God has chosen. Now, your Bible may say something different than base, the base things, it's a great play on words. The, uh, the, the Greek phrase is a, alpha privative negates a which is actually the exact opposite of noble. Okay? It's a great play on words. That is the not of noble birth. Okay? Or if you prefer the lowly, the insignificant. One time I did a little bit of background on the meaning of my, of my last name. And, and uh, of course, it was originally spelled with two N's, Borgman. And I found out that it meant man of the castle. And I thought, awesome! We probably owned castles. Then I found out it was actually a term designative just for people that worked in the castle. People that clean the castle. <laughs> the guys that probably went out and skimmed the scum off of the top of the moat. I mean, so you're just like the insignificant. It's not the people, it's not the nobles that live in the castle. It's the low lives who actually just keep it clean. And so Paul is saying the base, that is the insignificant. And then even worse, the despised. This particular word is the idea of to be treated as an entity of no merit or worth. Hmm. To be disdained, worthy of contempt, rejected, beneath someone's consideration. You get the picture, right? God has chosen the foolish things. God has chosen the weak things. God has chosen the base things, the insignificant, the low-born. God has chosen the despised. And then, absolutely marvelous, he says, the things that are not. Now, this is where um, just love for grammar pays off. There's no connecting word, there's no conjunction or anything. New American Standard does a good job of capturing how awkward this really does sound. The things that are not. Well, it's abrupt. It's terse. And the idea is it's the things, i.e. the people, who are nothing according to the opinions of men. They're regarded as if they did not exist. In fact, we could say something like this, the nothings and the nobodies. That's what God has chosen. In order to do what? In order to nullify... Notice this, the things that are. And now at that point, what Paul's doing is he's now, in a sense, kind of turning things around a little bit. So, so he has chosen, God has chosen the nothings and the nobodies, uh, in order to nullify the somethings and the somebodies. Those who are, th- those who think they're something. You ever met anybody that thought they were something? Nullify. This is different, right? Shame, shame, now nullify. That is to bring to final judgment and destruction. It's the final state of those who have been shamed. God's ways are strange. Aren't they? They are really strange. Um, as I look around, what do we what do we see? Just take a look. It's okay. Look around. Yeah, take a look. Now let me just tell you. That even if the president were here, no, let's change that. Even if, I'd have a different sermon. Say the governor was here, okay? Okay, all right, That's, that's, that's fine, that's fine. Let's say the governor was here, high, high status, okay? Let's say the guy who owns Tesla was here, okay? Or Let's say Bill Gates. Okay? Guess what? We would all be on the same level ground at the foot of the cross. That's Paul's point. That's Paul's point. God typically doesn't pick the governors or the presidents or the prime ministers. Now, I I did hear it said that Queen Elizabeth was actually, upon reading this text, says, I am so thankful for the letter M. It doesn't say there are not any noble, but just not many noble." There are a few, but guess what? We're all, in in a sense, we're all equalized at the foot of the cross. And it's not as if we're all elevated. It's that we're all put into the position where we really belong. That's the whole point is that, is that no matter who we are, the fact is, is that God doesn't delight in choosing the impressive and the strong and the mighty and the rich and, and He just, He rejoices in choosing just the ordinary people of the world that the world couldn't care less about. You have to admire it, right? There was an old Methodist preacher, and um, his name will come to me in a second. And uh, he was a, he was a frontier preacher. He was very very well known, and and um, Andrew Jackson had just been elected president. The Methodist name was Peter Cartwright. He was a he was a um, circuit riding preacher. That's all right. It's all right, Vic did it earlier, it's okay. And as uh, Peter Cartwright was in the back vestry getting ready to preach to, this, to this, uh, this, this little congregation, a man dressed in a very, very impressive suit for the frontier came and said to Mr. Cartwright, he says, Reverend Cartwright, I understand that you're a man who speaks things very plainly and very directly, but I would like to remind you that this morning, President Andrew Jackson will be in the congregation as he is a devout Methodist. So please, sir, watch your comments. And so Peter Cartwright got up and he said, ladies and gentlemen, it's been brought to my attention today that we have a very honored guest, the President of the United States, Andrew Jackson. People started to look around and Peter Cartwright said, I have a very simple message, Mr. President. Unless you repent, you will go to hell. That's awesome. It's great. You know why? Not a respecter of persons. Why? Because at the foot of the cross, we're all on equal ground. And so Paul says, God chooses the ragtag bench warmers like you and me to shame the wise, to shame the mighty, to nullify those that think they're something. And why does he do that verse 29? So that no man may boast before God. Why does God do what he does? Paul says Paul says here's why God chooses whom he chooses. So that no one will boast before God. Now, sometimes boasting in the scriptures can be positive, right? In fact, a lot of times boasting is very positive. But other times boasting is negative. It all depends on what the object of the boast is. And here Paul says that God does what he does so that no human status or human effort will receive praise before him. God does what he does so that he alone receives the praise. God does what he does so that to him alone belongs the glory. In fact, There is a very simple reason that the banner behind me, the one that is central and elevated above the others, is in that position. It's because it is the most important resounding theme throughout God's universe, and that is to God alone be the glory. To God alone be the glory. So God chose you, not because you're all that, God chose you so that you would glorify him because you know that it wasn't you that got yourself on God's side. And so God's saving process of choosing and calling is based on the same design as the cross. So the cross has the appearance of what? Weakness. The cross has the appearance of folly. God is delighted to work through the weakness and the folly of the cross. And He's also delighted to choose for Himself the weak and the foolish and the nothings and the nobodies. That's the way that He works. It's glorious. So two points of application, then we're done. The first is obvious. No boasting before God. So I want, you to, I want you to imagine yourself on the last day and God has separated the sheep from the goats and you are among the sheep. And you realize that you have just heard the words welcome, enter into my kingdom. And you nudge the sheep on your right and you say, man, I'm so glad that I was smarter than my neighbor who rejected the gospel. Right? No. You, you, you elbow the sheep on the left and you say, I am so deserving to be here because I was so advantaged. I received a college education, I grew up in the suburbs. No. Or you turn to the sheep behind you and say, man, I'm sure glad I had the parents that I had. I was better born. No. The reality is, is that on that last day, The only boasting that will take place will be boasting in God. No boasting in ourselves because we're not going to be there because we were wiser or because we were more advantaged or because we had better parents. The only reason that you're going to get to heaven and I'm going to get to heaven is because of the grace of God in Jesus Christ alone, period. That's it. That's it. It's not because your theology was better. It's not because your apologetics were sharper. It's not because you went to a better church. It is through the grace of God alone. We sing, Now, Lord, I would be yours alone and live so all might see. The strength to follow your commands could never come from me. O oh, Father, use my ransomed life in any way you choose And let my song forever be, My only boast is you. When I survey the wondrous cross on which the Prince of Glory died, my richest gain I count but loss and pour contempt on all my pride. Forbid it, Lord, that I should boast, save in the death of Christ my God and all the vain things that charm me most, I sacrifice them, To his blood. One of the reasons why people have such a hard time with election and calling is because there is something deep inside of us that resists that it is all of God and none of me. It drives a stake into the heart of my pride. The second. Point of application is this. Some of you are old enough to remember Francis Schaeffer. Remember Francis Schaeffer? Okay. Showing your age. Yeah. You might remember Francis Schaeffer wrote a book, really wonderful book called No Little People. Remember that book? No Little People. I think, and it's a good book for sure. I think everything that Schaeffer wrote was good. But I think Paul is making a different point here. I don't think Paul's saying there are no little people. I think what Paul's saying is there's no big people. (laughs) In the kingdom of God, there's no big people. I think it is best for us to see what Paul's doing here is simply leveling the ground. No one is elevated. In this room, there is not, there is not, there is not different classes of people in Christ. You can't say, actually, this this drives me crazy, so just, just indulge me for a second. People will say stupid things like this to me sometimes. Would you please come and pray for me because I know that God hears your prayers. Well, I know that God hears yours too. I'd be happy to pray with you. But don't think that I've got some hocus-pocus magic because I'm a pastor. God no more hears my prayers than he hears yours. And the reason that he hears yours or mine is not because of us, but because of Jesus Christ alone. Right? So I, I don't have the ability to somehow, you know, do something because I, you know, I live, you know, 12 stories closer to heaven than you do. It's just not true. There are no big people in God's kingdom. We're all little people. (laughs) Why? Because we're among the foolish and despised and the nothings and the nobodies. And so what what, what should that do for us? Well, I think that Paul's point is going to be that should profoundly affect the way that we treat one another. Not like this. I always knew you were nothing. I always knew you were nobody, right? But like this, thanks be to God. We're all in the same boat. And there's not a single one of us here that's worse off than anybody else. And there's not a single one of here that's better off than anyone else. All of us deserve eternal punishment. All of us have been given the grace of God. And God's done it not because you're awesome and I'm not, or I'm awesome and you're not. God's done it because he's God. Wow, could you imagine if we actually laid hold of that idea that all the ground at the foot of the cross is level ground, how we would treat one another. Paul's going to say that transforms the way you treat other people. And so thanks be to God that in eternity past, God decided to choose people like us. Thanks be to God that when he called us, he called us as the unimpressive, the ordinary, the outcast, those who had nothing to show of merit or value the poor, the despised. That's us. Embrace it. Be happy about it. God gets all the glory that way. God's not interested in sharing his glory with you. So he chooses people that can make no claims. And he alone gets the glory. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for your love and grace, which you have showered upon us. Father, we thank you for the great reality that although we were definitely the foolish and the weak and the nothings and the nobodies, you chose us. Father, That's no reason for pride by any stretch. It simply should compel us to be the most humble people on the face of the earth. Father, thank you for our Lord Jesus Christ. In his name we pray, amen. We hope you've enjoyed this message from Grace Community Church in Minden, Nevada. To receive a copy of this or other messages, call us at area code 775-782-6516 or visit our website, gracenevada.com.